This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS is committed to sustainability. It's good for the planet, business, and communities. Learn more about AWS sustainability goals at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. ESG reporting can be overwhelming, repetitive, and time-consuming. Be a catalyst for smarter and easier ESG reporting with Resource Advisor by Schneider Electric. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, closing the climate equity gap, how companies are coping with the anti-ESG movement, Delta's runway-ready sustainability strategy, and why the greening of commercial refrigeration is heating up. It's Cold Comfort, this week on 350. It's March 17th, 2023, St. Patrick's Day. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, shillelagh in hand, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Heather, it's this is sort of your, your day, your week. <laughs> uh, okay, I guess so. I do eat Irish soda bread, so that is my one concession to uh, St. Patrick's Day. But yeah, I, it's it's just another day. It is. So you don't have a the Irish in you. Uh, have a, the the Clancy, the Clancy. We clan were fly, we're flying the flag. We're flying a flag. But um, other than that, my uh, we used to go into to New York and be in the parade. And my husband is a partier, so we would have quite the extravagant parties. But we are we are going to celebrate it in a sedate fashion, in a an adult fashion. So yeah, yeah. Um, I I went. Um, Years and years, decades ago, when I was a, a young and living in New York, I went to the St. Patrick's Day Parade on Fifth Avenue. Uh, wow, what a scene. <laughs> I mean, you can watch it on television all you want, but to be there and see everybody and the energy and the the, the inebriated yeah. souls and all of that. What a, <laughs> well, what a we, we had some friends in the ancient order of Hiberians and... Um, We've done the. We've actually walked the parade with them, and then we had another friend whose brother was a bagpiper, so we walked with him, and you know, so we've actually walked it a bunch of times. And it is funny. To, it is fun and funny actually to watch from inside the parade to watch the people on the sidelines, and then you know, yeah. but yeah, yeah, it, the parade's almost secondary. Yeah, <laughs> it is a, a lot of <laughs> yeah, like parade watcher type things. Anyway, so yeah, it, thank you, but thank you very much for recognizing. Uh, the day of Clancy's, yes. Well, I'll tell you what, let's move from the wearing of the green to the talking of the green in the Week in Review. I'm going to start us off, Joel, with the piece that you wrote for the newsletter this week. The first rule of ESG, don't talk about ESG. <laughs> Love the title. By right. first of all, I've never actually seen that movie, but I, I, it really just sort of it was a great headline, awesome headline. First well, of all. the 
the uh, the movie in question is the 1999 f- uh, Fight Club movie yeah. Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt, um, uh, Meatloaf. Uh, and <laughs> oh, a bunch I forgot of that he was in that. Yeah. And 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 they had yeah, who could forget? And Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter, I think, was part of that. Uh, the um, uh, the first rule of Fight Club was don't talk right. about Fight Club. So there's it was a se- sort of a secret society. Yeah. And and this isn't a secret society, ESG, although I think there are people who wish it was. Uh, but the question that I asked this week is, how much should companies cower to the political pushback against ESG and woke? Um, and, and um, you know, the short answer is that, you know, companies aren't really changing much. They're, they're staying the course, but they're just not talking about it, ESG as much or to the extent they are. They're starting, and it's just starting to find other ways, other words mm-hmm. to talk about it. In other words, don't talk about ESG. Yeah. So, I was at an event. Um, yeah, I it, was at an event this week where yeah. this this really resonated, and, and definitely the, there are people at the event were talking about your column and how much it resonated with them because they are not changing their strategies, but they are changing how they talk about it. And um, you know, I I got to be honest with you, ESG is such a bear of a term and it's way it's so broad i mean come on like it, it's just trying to say too much and and we've tended and i say we I, the 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 movement the corporate sustainability movement hasn't been very eloquent um in how it describes what it's doing and i this is kind of i think part of the the, the, the state we find ourselves in is we have we ju- we haven't taken the offensive we have not taken the the lead as much as we should have and we've allowed others to define what this is um I don't know well well, well here's the ultimate iteration of the first rule of ESG as you know on Wednesday this week Larry Fink the chairman of BlackRock, issued his annual chairman, it's called the chairman's letter to investors. And this is uh, one of those, um, uh, you know, documents, you know, handed down from the mount that is is very well scrutinized and, and it, it's news in and of itself. And here's the thing, um, uh, I'm looking at it now and uh, the three letters E, S, and G do not appear in it. He does not talk, nor does he talk about, in, in you know, in a sentence, environmental, social governance. So the words that ESG stands for do, do not show up in there. So he, I, I'm sure, did never, has never read my column, certainly didn't this week. But he is, uh, I think, the embodiment of, of what we're talking about here. Um, and you know, read the letter, uh, you know, you'll see that he feels like he's backpedaling on some of his uh, pretty bold statements that he's made in the past. One of the, some of the things that led to him being held up as an icon uh, uh, in sustainability, at least sustainability investing. Um, you know, he's saying that um, it's not our business to be telling companies what to do. And, and, and that's just a little odd because I thought it was the investors uh, business to, you know, cause, cause the, Board of Directors uh, is influenced heavily by the investors. Investors, in fact, are the boss of the Board of Directors, who are the boss of the CEO. And a lot of this was, in effect, telling companies what they should be doing, at least. Uh, It's just an interesting development. I guess this whole backlash, uh, in some ways, is is 
taking hold even more than than I thought. Yeah. Although one thing I want to just mention as a sort of a array of hope, if you will, I, I first of all, I really appreciated some of the examples you gave, even though unfortunately the people that gave you those examples felt like they had to be anonymous. Um, but I took these are the companies yeah. ta- who are talking about uh, how they're thinking about this moment yeah. from a communications yep. and and standpoint. Yeah. So you you t- and one of the states that that's talked about is Idaho and the examples of of the the laws there. One prevents state and local governments from entering into contracts with companies that decline to do business with firms that engage in the manufacture, sale, or distribution of firearms or the production of fossil fuels. So like, there's some really specific laws there, um, and. To be to be clear, these are bills that have been I, I, oh bills passed, passed that passed at least one uh, of the bicameral legislature. I don't know if it's been handed up, let alone to the governor for signing. So they're not yet on it. the okay. books. So they're not yet fair laws. enough. But I guess the point I want to make number one is that the individual that gave you this was talking about this example of how they are effective and the way that they are engaging with um, people across the aisle to just have very straightforward conversations about what they're doing and why. And um, I think that's number one, super important. But I also was doing some research and I noticed um, in some of these laws, like, um, first of all, North Dakota, I didn't know this. They've had something on the books since like March, 2021. (laughs) Um, And it's very, it allows some very specific exceptions. Um, And they start talking about fiduciary responsibility and pecuniary responsibility. um, And they are, they're absolutely um, uh, cognizant of the fact that risk, that many of these, um, many of the things in, in the ESG bucket have to do with risk and that investors are obligated to look at risks and, and definitely climate, climate triggered events are going to fall into that flooding and, and you know, other Supp- supply, supply chain. chain yeah, so there will be business continuity. Yeah. All and that. Indiana also has, um, you know, exceptions built in. Arizona, we've seen, is backing off. So I think that um, upon further reflection, some of these, uh, some of this legislation is going to be going to come back a little bit, at least in terms of like recognizing that investors have a fiduciary responsibility to look at some of these things. So I don't know. Maybe I'm being too but, but naive think- and too too uh, optimistic, but but you too optimistic. I don't think so. No, I know you're 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 always the bright uh, side, the optimistic yeah. one in the family. Um, but I think it also reflects uh, the struggles going on within the Republican mm-hmm. Party between uh, you know anti woke and being performative and you know anti progressive anything, um, and being you know government the traditional uh, Republican. Uh, stance of hey, government hands off our stuff and let's not wait in this is this this should this needs to happen uh, uh, the markets need to 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 rule things so but the other thing that was interesting is um why companies are continuing to stay the course on this first of all so any big company these days it has a lot if not half or more than half of their revenue coming from outside the united states so so and they don't just practice things differently generally speaking when it comes to sustainability and on different continents they tend to go to one standard that usually the european or u.s standard whichever is higher uh and and so that's one reason. But it was, it was interesting. There's two different comments from two different uh, people I interviewed. One was a tech company. You know, he said, um, 
we have a responsibility to create in both creating impacts and also enabling solutions. He said, but if we alienate half our customers, presumably by you know going too heavy into what are some seen as as woke or inappropriate, if we alienate half our customers, they said, then we don't achieve our potential. Somebody else said, well, we're not going to talk about ESG as much, but we haven't slowed down because we still have customers that are pushing us pretty hard. So I think that's, uh, and it may be that the first one was talking more about uh, um, uh, B2C customers. Uh, this is a consumer electronics company versus the other one, which is more of a B2B company. Uh, but I just think that's interesting, the two different ways that customers affect this. One is customers want us to do this stuff, so we're going to do it because that's how we get paid. And the other is we don't want to alienate half our customers. So this is a conversation that's... Um, I don't know how long it's going to be going on. I hope it doesn't go too much past this current election cycle, which, but that's still another year and a half away. So that could be a little exhausting, <laughs> but, but uh, this is going to be around for a while. I'm sure it's not even going to just disappear. Although sometimes these things, you know, these, these, what some, some of us dub manufactured outrage does go away when something else takes its place. And then it's like, oh yeah, we used to be concerned about ESG, but I guess that's over. So we'll see. That would be a nice outcome at some point. Just not not because they're not wrong. There are some aspects of ESG that need fixing, absolutely. And ESG doesn't measure a lot of the things that some people think it measures. It measures risk, not impact. Uh, and so there's a lot. And and ESG funds are charging, you know, excessive. One some would say premiums to invest and. Make, they're making uh, companies are making a lot of money regardless of whether these funds are actually changing anything. Um, so so there's a lot to do, but this is a this is actually a healthy conversation in some regards. But the mere fact that this is about risk and companies are trying to mitigate risk all the time, as you said, Heather, this is going to be around for quite some time. So let's move on to another story. This one from our colleague Vartan Badalian who is our, uh, our transportation uh, analyst uh, and who leads the GreenBiz Transport Network, I wrote a piece about one of my favorite topics, uh, airline sustainability, focusing specifically in this case on Delta and the new sustainability plan that they uh, unveiled. And uh, interestingly, he, you know, he, and I think he's, you know, good on him for doing this, for, for looking at what's good, but also saying, you know, in some ways, this is not a nothing burger, but there's some, he said, I, you know, he's not sure how much, how, how different this is. There's some slivers of progress here, um, but also some um, some vagueness too. So I'll just give you one that I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Heather, is <laughs> uh, minimizing single-use plastic on board by 2025. What does minimizing mean? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it means either, and I and he, I don't. It doesn't really seem to um, to get any clearer after he talks to her. To her. Um, but I, I guess, yeah, um, I don't know what to say about it. It just it single single. So I mean, here here we go. So here's another interesting thing to think about is how everyone brings on uh, food now, right? You you go to the airport. You probably aren't going to get a meal on the plane. You go buy stuff in the airport, and what are you bringing onto the plane? Probably single-use plastics, bottles, and um, you know, clamshells for your sandwich if you've gotten one. Uh, 
eggs. I, this is my favorite. You get like eggs and they're wrapped up in all of these, these plastic. And I just, you know, like, I mean, I know that's not the airline's problem necessarily, but but it is kind of. A, yeah, they're eliminating single-use plastic because they probably just got rid of the meals. <laughs> so it's like a cost-saving measure that, oh, by the way, you know, we're only using, oh, I don't know, uh, X million tons of, of, of plastic on our, our flights in a year. I think the industry, what is it using? The industry is using um, 5 million to 7 million tons of single-use single plastic waste they contribute. That That's figures here in the story. But yeah, it, it doesn't really, I don't know. It It's so nonspecific. And that's part of the issue I have with a lot of these um, commitments. They're, they're written, and actually, here's my here's one of my favorites. I'm, I'm looking up earlier in the story. Um, it talks, it's about the... Uh, the airline, the SAF, the Sustainable Aviation Fuel, achieve, okay, so one of the goals is to achieve 10% of sustainable aviation fuel usage by 2030, 35% by 2035, and 95% by 2050. What does that mean? What does it mean? That Does that mean that, ev- that all of the fuel is sustainable aviation fuel by that point? Is it what does 10% mean? Does it mean 10% of each flight, 10% of all flights? I, I, I don't, yeah, so it's... I, I'm pretty sure it's it's not of each flight because it, it's not widely available. Yeah. It's only available in certain markets. I assume, assume this is system-wide mm-hmm. um, because, uh, and one interesting thing there about the 90%, and I, I assume they're, they're banking on this uh, development taking place is that right now you can only use about 50% SAF uh, in a in a plane, fifty uh, percent south, and then fifty percent of the traditional petroleum-based uh, what's called Jet A fuel, um, and and so ninety percent isn't even technically possible. The assumption is that, and then there have been some experimental flights or test flights that have used one hundred percent at least in one engine, and so this is a, a work in progress. Uh, so they're 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 making some assumptions about where technology will be. I think I think what this is. Um, What's not in here uh, in this piece, and it's because it's, it's, it's not what the piece is about, but it's the complexity of of all of these things we're talking about. So with food service, for example, sure, we talk about the airline and they do this and they serve meals or don't serve meals and they have this. But when you think about it, there's, first of all, there's the caterer, there's the airport operations, there's the there's the food preparers. Then that I guess is maybe the caterer is the same as the caterer. Then there's the airport operations and the ones who actually put the meals on board. There's the airline. It's the the in-flight crew itself in terms of what happens and how they collect things at the end. And then the airport back the airport operations. But now it's a different airport where they landed. Uh, of of terms of of how that waste gets handled and what's the recycling infrastructure even in that particular city or state. Um, uh, you know, there's a this is really complex. And when you get to fuel, again, you've got six, eight, maybe even ten different parties involved, from the SAF manufacturer to the blender who puts it together with with traditional fuel to the delivery, whether it's truck or pipeline company, to the airport operations, to the folks who actually put the you know fuel the plane, and then you know at each location and and. That's assuming that the availability of SAF is is uniformly uh, spread, and it's certainly not. Most of it's in California because of uh, low standards, uh, uh, low carbon fuel standard that that exists in in this state. So, <laughs> guess what? Sustainability is complicated and nuanced, and 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 in- intricately uh, wound with different networks and ecosystems. 
And I think that's part of the under uh, unstated piece here. You know, whether it needs to be stated in this piece or not, I don't know, but interesting. Interesting. Um, and can I just say one yeah. other thing? And we belabor this one, but, but I mean, to your point about it being complicated, the whole um, area of taxiing, uh, they're, they're going to rely on some changes in how um, the planes are actually taxied out, which again, relies on the airport operations, on lo- lots of people that are not the airline itself. But I will have to, exactly, but I will have to say that um, I appreciate that they're trying and I appreciate that they are very specifically focused on certain things and um, that some of their deadlines are much earlier than then, you know, I think I think people are finally copying. To, uh, companies are finally copying to the fact that they have to have short-term, medium, and long-term commitments, and they have to really focus on making them all. <laughs> so I, I like yeah. that about this story. But, but but let's face it, it's the fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, stupid, you know. I mean, it's all about the fuel. The the, on, the in-flight waste is 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 important, but it's not the biggest impact. And it's also really important that that we make sure they keep their eye on the prize, um, and, and and what that is. But let's go to a different uh, kind of complexity here, which is. Uh, Cold storage mm-hmm. for food. Brr. Wow. It's a, it's different, a chilling uh, topic. I know it's, it's a chilling topic. And I know you, you've had a chilling week over there yes. in, in, in the East Brr. Coast, uh, up in Northeast this Nor'easter. week. Nor'easter. Um, but this comes from Mike DeSocio, one of our regulars. Um, instead of looking at the world of commercial refrigeration, and of course, refrigeration being the, the, the coolants being one of the biggest uh, contributors to global warming, um, I'll let you take this one on. <laughs> okay. I think, well, first of all, I'm glad that this is uh, being raised because it is one of those underappreciated challenges that the the retail world it faces, especially, you know, obviously grocery stores, but, you know, the others that sell items that have to be refrigerated, including, by the way, you know, drug stores, which, you know, I mean, that's a whole nother ball of wax, right? Having to keep the medicines cold. But um what I didn't know, uh, he, he, he talks about, obviously, the commercial refrigeration. What I didn't know was how customized each of these systems w- is. And that's part of the challenge here is that um, all of the, dif- this, the different components that need to go into, you know, the compressors. And, you know, it's so like it's, it's not just one, hi, you buy this thing and you can plug it in and, and, and fix it. It's it's a very complicated process to upgrade a commercial refrigeration unit in a grocery store. And so I never, I don't think I really appreciated that until, until I read this. Um, and, but it is a huge problem. Uh, commercial freezers can, you, can draw down um, 38,000 kilowatt hours annually. That's quadruple the average American home. And then we have 40,000 grocery stores in the U.S., and then you, you like kind of use those two figures and it's a big deal. So it's a big deal. There are organizations that are starting to address it more aggressively. The North American Sustainable Refrigeration Council is uh, the main person uh, who's who's offering perspective in this piece. And I, I just think it's a a wake up call that that more people aren't, should be talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to echo what you were saying about the. Uh, this being a system of sort of like an automobile, we've got a lot of different parts and you can 
uh, where we're, most of us, if we if our fridge breaks, we tend to swap that out for a new one. Although sometimes you can you can replace a, a component, but with the these you know more bespoke uh, commercial refrigeration units, uh, you you know you can pre- you replace a compressor here or a condenser there or, or the 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 door seal or the handle or so other things that sort of keep it keep the uh, refrigeration unit finely tuned. Um, and and that's actually an opportunity because it means you don't have to replace the whole thing in order to to improve its efficiency and reduce its uh, its its impacts its negative impacts. But yeah, this is uh, one of these things that's that's quietly happening behind the scenes. Doesn't get a lot of uh, uh, doesn't get talked about that much. Um, and and then there's a the whole area of natural refrigerants, the, the things to replace the. Uh, hydrofluorocarbon uh, refrigerants that are now used that replace the chlorofluorocarbon refrigerants that were destroying the ozone layer, but these are still have a high carbon dioxide uh, global warming uh, capacity. So lots to go there. And, um, uh, but I think that uh, we've, uh, let's put a bow on this and close the door and uh, go back into the warm world. Kapor Capital is an Oakland, California-based early-stage venture capital firm founded by Mitch Kapor and Frida Kapor Klein, who both played pioneering roles in the computer software industry. It was created in 2011 explicitly to fund startups that close some sort of gap experienced by low-income communities or communities of color. It lives by four investing rules. One, close gaps of access to information or goods and services. Two, expand economic opportunity in the workplace and the marketplace, three, produce significant financial returns, and four, build a diverse team and inclusive company culture. Since its inception, Kapor Capital has invested in more than 170 startups. 62% of the founders identify as people of color and or women, which is far higher than the abysmal venture capital industry average. Its internal rate of return over the past decade is 29%, which puts it in the top quartile of all similar-sized funds. What's behind this success? Frida and Mitch share what they've learned in a new book out this week entitled Closing the Equity Gap. The subtitle is Creating Wealth and Fostering Justice in Startup Investing. They chatted with me to share some of those lessons, and I've chosen some excerpts from that interview for this podcast segment. Considering the GreenBiz audience, one of the questions I put to the couple was what role large corporations play in supporting this shift. Here's Frida Kapor Klein. Well, in particular, the corporate venture capital arm uh, can operate differently, can also uh, make a point of looking at uh, businesses such as those in the Kapor Capital portfolio that are explicitly gap closing. They can look at using their VC dollars um, to solve very difficult social problems while they're also making money. Corporations can also make good on their diversity pledges. Uh, After George Floyd was murdered, there was almost $50 billion in pledges made by corporations and and other organizations. Uh, And when it was tracked by the Washington Post and others, 0.5% of those dollars were actually spent. So that is billions of dollars that could do a lot of good 
going to fund directly into these companies that are run by entrepreneurs whose lived experience gives them the idea for these businesses. It could be put into otherwise underrepresented and underestimated fund managers um, who are bringing different investment criteria to the table when they are looking uh, for entrepreneurs. They can also, corporations can also invest their foundation dollars very differently. Uh, we see often this dilemma where a corporate foundation or a standalone foundation with a large endowment that there's this wall that separates the chief investment officer from the program officers. So the program officers might be following up on the mission of alleviating poverty or reducing climate change. And that's done with the 5% interest out of the endowment. The 95% that the chief investment officer is overseeing might be in making its money in things that enhance poverty, that make poverty worse, that make climate change worse. And here we've got this 95 versus 5% battle. We know who's probably going to win that. And there's never a conversation between the chief investment officer and the program officer. So I think actually starting to hold chief investment officers of foundations and of universities, and especially in this context, corporate foundations, hold them accountable to invest their endowments consistent with their mission. I also asked the couple to share ideas for how startups can rethink compensation and other management policies to attract more people of color. Here are their thoughts, starting with Mitch Kippur. So first of all, I think that simply having founders of color who are building businesses that help low-income communities and communities of color, that in and of itself is a great way to attract more people of color. So that's as a, as, as a baseline. But on top of that, and there are a number of things that uh, companies can do. One thing is to make sure that employees understand the trade-offs between equity and compensation. If it is not in your background where you came from, your community, your family, that there was no investing, no stocks, no, none of that. And you know, you come into a tech startup and they all have equity-based compensation. You don't know how to think about it. You don't know if it's important. You may really want to optimize for current income, but that is not the wealth building opportunity that having equity is if that company is successful. And so I think it's incumbent on employers to make sure that all employees get a firm understanding, whether they have it or not, to begin with, of how these how equity works and the trade-offs between equity and, 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 and compensation. Um, similarly, I think one thing that has started to happen but should happen more universally is to extend how many years an employee has to exercise their stock options because we are seeing that um, the startups are actually taking longer to come to maturity. They're held in private hands now 10, 12 years. It's not unusual at all. It can even be 15 years. And employees may put in many years of service and leave, but um, 
they shouldn't be forced to decide to come up with the cash to exercise their options right after they leave. Having as long a runway to do that as the companies have themselves is, is going to be very important and is a, is a kind of a wealth building tactic. And then finally, I think um, having a, a broader range of 401k options in compensation, including letting people put their 401ks in funds that have impact themselves, uh, uh, is 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 very important because then people can be as employees investing their retirement savings in accord with their own values and and hopefully with the the values and mission um, of the company. So one of the benefits for employees in any of our organizations, whether it's K4 Capital, K4 Center, Smash, is a benefit that helps employees pay down student loans. And one of the things it does in that process is, um, I should also add that we have invested in companies that are student loan benefits uh, for, um, for enterprise companies. But one of the things that the student loan benefits companies do is they are part financial literacy. So they help someone understand the enormous debt burden of paying the minimum every month. And how, you know, the wonder of compound interest and that you can uh, end up paying 10x the amount of your student loan easily um, and therefore have have to put off things like buying a house um, or beginning to save for your own kids education. So the student loan benefit programs help you um, set an amount of money that you can afford but that's more than minimum, and that directs some of that extra payment every month to pay down the principal, not just interest. I, I will say it was surprising and shocking to find that in general, the uh, middlemen or middle persons who kind of administer student loan repayments have these systems set up to actually make it difficult to pay down your principal. Uh, they're really in the business of causing people to have to pay more in interest. And so mm -hmm. good employer education and engaging one of these firms that provides good student loan benefits is a kind of a counterweight to these additional unnecessary and unjust obstacles that are actually being in place in, in, in people's way. When it's further um, annoying at best because student loans are generally guaranteed by the government. So there is no risk to the lender. Um, and yet they are engaging in these deceptive practices and exorbitant rates. Another suggestion in the book is that every company should have an ombudsperson for hearing workplace concerns. Frida Kapor Klein shares the rationale for this policy. Well, the rationale is that every workplace has its difficulties, um, has its managers that have a bad day, uh, and that in day-to-day -day real life, um, issues arise. Some of those are interpersonal conflict, some of those are biases, some of those are systemic, um, and there are many, many subtle and not so subtle pressures against speaking up or against bringing a complaint. Uh, and so an ombuds is a third party neutral 
who does not represent management. HR, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging folks, as wonderful as they are, they also are representatives of management. And so employees need a safe place to go that doesn't trigger a formal complaint. And sometimes that's just to get advice. Employees want often a sounding board. Am I overreacting? Should this be going on? Is this an okay management practice? Um, how do I respectfully ask that something change about my work environment? And so ombuds are great at that kind of practical sounding board and practical problem solving. Um, they are also great at aggregating the issues that they're hearing about and giving management sort of early warning signals without any names attached, without identifying information. Because workplace problems, if they are unaddressed, they grow. And so having an ombuds, having a safe place uh, for a fair resolution, for advice, uh, is good for employees and it's good for the employer. Last May, the two pioneering investors stepped back from actively managing the firm, naming Yulili Onavakpauri and Brian Dixon, who are both Black, as managing partners. I asked them what's next, and here's what's in store. Well, I am not entirely sure. I may write a memoir. Uh, I've been at this 40 years, and if I, you know, after very careful scrutiny, think I have some things that I really want to pass on, I will do that. At the moment, I will tell you at this very moment, I am completely immersed in thinking about the impact of these new generative artificial intelligence systems, because I find myself completely fascinated, not believing the way the strong advocates do that they're going to take over everything, our new robot overlords, but also not with the skeptics who say they will amount to nothing. I think We've created something new and really interesting that we don't understand that could be could do us a lot of good or a lot of harm. And so at the moment, I've just I'm 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 deep into sorting out. Well, what does all this mean? And given all these things depend on being trained, the data that you put into them affects what comes out. And we know that what we're doing now is putting in our own biases as a society. Uh, and what can we do about that? There feels to be some urgency around that. And it's kind of consistent with our whole approach. Don't have an idea of what an intervention might be yet, but maybe Frida and I will cook something up. <laughs> uh, well, um, for me, I'm uh, staying much more consistent with our mission, uh, but doing other things. I'm spending more time on the foundation side. So things like expanding the Summer Associates, the Summer Fellows Program to 25, to involving other venture capital firms. Uh, very interested in national collaboration on access programs. Uh, so I started a, an organization called SMASH 20 years ago, and we are Summer Math and Science Honors Academy. It was uh, for it was a three summer residential program for high school kids, first gen college goer, underrepresented, half girls since day one, um, and had spectacular outcomes. 
And so now we're asking the question, if we were launching in 2023, what would it look like? It wouldn't be as focused on college access. Um, what kind of alternative pathways might we imagine? So we're embarking on having national conversations, looking for mission-aligned, values-aligned organizations to collaborate with, um, to experiment, and to uh, build with. I just um, got elected to the national board of the NAACP, um, which is quite an honor. Um, and so it doesn't look like I'm going to have a lot of free time anytime soon. <laughs> Sorry I couldn't include my entire conversation with Mitch Kapoor and Frida Kapoor-Klein, but you can read the extended interview in written form on greenbiz.com. The link is included in the show notes for this episode. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, your tips. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where success and scale bring broad responsibility and big companies have a bigger obligation to protect the planet. Learn more at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric. Alleviate frustrations in ESG data management and reporting with EcoStructure Resource Advisor. Insights for impact. For more information, please visit resourceadvisor.com.